0: Come on! Welcome left love? This is George G, and the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, strong and powerful, Gil Baumgarten. Gil, are you ready to do this? You bet! All right, excited to have you back on. Gil is a president of Segment Wealth Management. He's a fiduciary financial advisor, best-selling author of foolish. He's a disruptive wealth management pioneer who's been named to the top 20 ETF thought leaders by the Wall Street Journal and Barons. Gil, glad to have you back on. Tell us a little bit about your personal lives, more about your work and why you do what you do.
1: Thank you. Um, well, I've been uh, married for 38 years and uh, so, yeah, yeah, more like yeah, 35 years. And um got three, uh, grown kids and, you know, I have two little grandbabies and, uh, just, you know, I've been in the financial services business for that's what I've done for 38 years. And, um, you know, it's just, uh, I do a little painting. I do a little woodwork, uh, you know, so just enjoy spending time with my family and taking care of my clients.
0: Nice. I appreciate that. So we're having this conversation on May the 11th, and we are experiencing lots of different experiences. Um, when when the market, how do you think about the market today?
1: It spooks me. Um, you know, throughout my 38 years in the business, I've had the benefit of the backdrop of declining interest rates. Uh, And now suddenly we have a very different set of circumstances. And that creates several problems for investors. One is it gives them other alternatives. One of the things that has driven stock prices higher, I believe, over the last 40 years or so, has been that people's other competitive choices have become worse and worse. When you had an 8% CD and you were offered a 5%, you might accept that. But when your 5% went to 3%, you might not accept that. And some of that money ended up in the stock market. And because the stock market is an auction in which the motivation of buyers and sellers are what determine equilibrium price, the more buyers and more money you have chasing those stocks coming out of CDs and bonds, the higher those prices are going to go. And so I think we have seen the culmination of that over the last 40 years, and I don't really look forward to an environment in which other competitive vehicles suck that money out of the stock market. So I think that's what the market is bracing itself for.
0: So that we're going that that regular investors are going to have the opportunity to put money into some kind of a, a fixed income type investment and get a an attractive rate of return versus for the last 40 years, the rates of return just, or give or take, uh, have not been attractive. So it's all gone to the stock market.
1: Yes. But that too is a double-edged sword because when you buy a fixed vehicle, say you could get a 5% treasury bond that's 30 years long, which we're approaching that, you know, as interest rates head higher, um, if interest rates go to 8%, your 5% bond is going to be worth about $0.70 on the dollar because the bond market prices future cash flows and equates that into current market value. And so depending on how high interest rates go, the bond market could also be a dangerous place. So there's investors don't have a lot of really good alternatives because that factor also affects real estate. And the prices that people are willing to pay for real estate is driven by how cheaply they can finance things. And when they can finance things cheaply, they will drive prices higher and higher. So you have sort of this: um, no, nothing is undervalued; everything is fully valued. And rising interest rates puts a, a lot of pressure on a lot of different types of vehicles. So it makes me edgy,
0: spooky, and 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 a little edgy. Yeah. Um, so how do you navigate this? What what, what are the conversations with with clients?
1: Um, Well, our clients are in it for the long haul, and they understand that they're going to lose money periodically uh, in pursuit of higher returns. And they're also, uh, they prioritize tax management. So we can't very easily go in and completely restructure uh, client uh, portfolios because I don't want to force them to pay taxes any sooner than they otherwise would have had to. And blue chip stocks held for a lifetime are tax-free. Uh, upon the death of the first spouse. So we manage money understanding that a step up in basis is the most powerful tax rule that a lot of people don't understand and don't optimize. And so a lot of people who are transactional minded will swap one investment for another and maybe even make another percentage point or two, but have no idea that they've just lost 50% of the benefit from the vehicle that they just sold. And so people are not mindful of how complicated the ecosystem is and they can create tax problems for themselves that will deteriorate their return in their pursuit of higher returns. And so we we try to be mindful of optimizing all of that. So we try to buy assets that we have a 30 or 40 year timeline on and we don't hop around a lot because that's what creates tax problems for clients.
0: That makes sense. And in terms of managing fear and, and the emotions, which our brains naturally, you know, when, when, when we see the market goes down by X, Y, Z percent, we don't like it. I don't, yeah. think, I don't know that anybody does. How do, you, how do you handle that?
1: One of the issues that I see repeat itself over and over again is that people are relative performance evaluators in an up market. How did I do relative to everything else? And it's almost like a horse race where everybody's jockeying to be at the front of the pack. But when we go into a negative market, people completely shift their mindset away from the objective, uh, how am I doing relative to everything else? And they switch to absolute, meaning I could have owned a bank CD where I wouldn't have lost any money. And you can't really have it both ways. If you're going to be a relative performance evaluator, you need to be relative performance in all markets up or down. And it can be really mentally and emotionally vexing to play this game with ourselves where we try to be at the front of the pack when everything's going fine. And then all of a sudden we envision we should be an observer of the horse race when everybody else is losing money. And that's extraordinarily difficult to do. And actually the pursuit of it Will probably end up generating much worse returns overall than if you had just simply endured all the good and all the bad.
0: Can't have it both ways. That's yeah. exactly right. <laughs> Cake and eat it too. I've probably got a couple more, a uh, couple more in me, but uh, <laughs> but we'll we'll just keep going. Mm-hmm. All right. So it's always let's 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 keep things in perspective. Let's sure. let's take a step back, and this is just part of the way that the stock market is supposed to operate. That's right. We we go through cycles.
1: I heard a quote the other day that I had never heard before that I thought was absolutely fantastic. And the quote was, the stock market is not a pricing mechanism for the value of businesses. Hmm. It is a mechanism to shift money from impatient investors to patient investors. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's so profound because that's what happens. People who are impatient end up losing money. And the people who stick around are the ones that absorb all that money. And so back to buying good stuff and hanging on to it for a lifetime, uh, there's a lot of wisdom in
0: that. And you need the wisdom to be able to to plan for the great times and then plan for the bad times too. So you're in a position to be able to say, that's right, Gil told me I just need to be patient.
1: That's right. Patience is a virtue, especially in investing.
0: And then when people are, are driving and filling up their gas tanks and and buying food and the the cost of that has now gone up exponentially across, I, I think, probably everything. Yeah. How how are you thinking and talking about communicating that about inflation?
1: Well, uh, that kind of goes into politics, because um, in prior administrations and I'm not going to say which is which. I think people can easily recognize what types of uh, government action resulted in stable prices and what more recent type of government action has resulted in much higher prices. And I went to a cafe 20 years ago and I was the last guy in it. And this, I walked in late and this waitress comes up to me and offers to serve me, despite the fact that the restaurant was almost closing. And um, she asked me what I did for a living. And I told her that I managed money for people. And she took my order, kind of cogitated on that for a bit. And since I was the last customer in, when she brought my food out, she asked me if she could sit down and talk to me for a minute. And I said, sure. And she said, how come the government couldn't just simply decide that everybody needs to make twice as much money? And at the time, I think minimum wage was $5 or whatever it was. Why couldn't they just make sure that I had plenty of money just by making people have more money? I could be making, they could mandate that the minimum wage should be $15 an hour and I would suddenly have a lot more money. And how come I couldn't just get my income to be doubled? And I said, well, if they did that, every one of your dollars would be worth 50 cents. And she had this puzzled look on her face and then it finally sunk in that you know value is relative to how much Productivity you produce, and therefore that's how you're compensated. And when the government throws a bunch of money into the system through PPP loans and uh, you know bailouts for this or that, or uh, you know money for nothing, a lot of the supply issue uh, problems that we have right now is because people have been compensated to not work. Then you have the lack of their production causing a a decrease in the supply of all the goods and services they would have produced and all the dollars that have been given away are now are chasing a fewer number of goods, guess what's gonna happen? You know, you're gonna have much higher prices for things like boats and planes and cars and motorcycles, the cost of everything is gonna go up. And so that is directly due to government policy. And I think people should think about that next time at the ballot box.
0: That makes sense. In terms of, we'll we'll just kind of stay on on other really hot button issues right now. What do you think about uh, wiping out student debt?
1: Um, Well, that would be another inflationary activity. So therefore you would have money that is going to be returned to one group versus another. And I think it's extraordinarily unfair for people who have taken out student loans and have paid them off to then find out that another group of people in a different timeline happen to be getting their loans forgiven. Um, I think that when you have somebody who takes out a loan and derives the benefit from it and was the, uh, the sole decision maker with regard to the responsibility, now shifting that back to taxpayers who didn't decide to do that, nor did they benefit from the education that came from that. I think that's extraordinarily unfair. And I think it's corrupting with regard to how people make value decisions. And it completely distorts the risk offset in how people perceive risk in stocks and risk in real estate, risk in the bond market. There is a free market enterprise system that is held together by those promises. And Uh, risk and reward. And when you, when you come in and start juggling around what that risk and reward looks like, and you reward people who took the risk and you penalize people who didn't take the risk. I think it really is a corrupting um,
0: action. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. When I I think (laughs) And I, I've been, it's hard for me to get my brain around it. I think if I actually sat down and thought, spent some more time thinking about it, maybe I could figure it out. But since since you're here, I think <laughs> you can probably save me some time. Is who will be the bag holder uh, of the, tax,
1: the taxpayer would be the bag holder. I mean, there is the government does not produce anything. The government only takes money from people who produce. And it spends that on all types of things, some of which I agree with, some of which I disagree with. And this is true of conservative administrations and liberal administrations. I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just saying that's government's job is to take money from the people and distribute it in very inefficient ways. And you have people who are decision makers in government who never had any private industry experience. And they have never taken economics, so they don't really understand the payoff of how you know money was obtained and what you're requiring with what you're spending. They become somewhat arbitrary. They have no real stake in the game. And I think if you pay real close attention, you will find people in uh, positions of power, make decisions to not be criticized, as opposed to making economic decisions that are Good for everybody. Uh, so uh, I think you just have to look between the lines and figure out you know which side you're on.
0: Yeah. So federal government guaranteed these loans. So George, George went. Me, I I, I went to college. I took out fifty thousand dollars of loans, and that was essentially the government lending me that money. That's and right. so, so they that year, we'll say twenty years ago. Assessed taxes, collected taxes, and then they gave me that money, which I gave to the university. That's right. And now, so along the way, I've been paying that back. And so that money plus interest has been going back into the federal government, which they have used to make a budget off of, assuming that George is going to be making payments. That's right. So now, if all of a sudden that $50,000, $40,000 debt that I still owe goes away, that's going to have other impacts that's going to result in having to raise more tax revenue.
1: That's right. Yeah, that's where that's where it, that's the mechanism by which it puts that responsibility back. So you now have a hole in the balance sheet of the government that it was expecting to receive back. And that becomes part of the deficit that new taxpayers and new taxes have to fill in that hole over time. Assuming that you had a mandate of a balanced budget. Uh, which I would think would be a very good thing. I have to balance my budget at home, but the federal government seems to think that all they have to do is print more money, uh, which is exactly why you're having high inflation right
0: now. So I think that that's such an important thing that people sort of understand because it's a good talking point when they say, oh, we'll just cancel student debt. It just goes away and then nobody needs to worry about it. But that's just not the reality. Well,
1: Elon Musk said the other day, and I don't want to misquote him, but I think what he said was it's a, an unfortunate situation that a, recent co- uh, a, uh, a, a student aspiring to go to college can borrow $100,000 in student loans, but couldn't borrow $10,000 from the bank. Uh, well, that tells you a lot right there. And that creates inflation in education. I just recently sent three kids through school and you wouldn't believe how much more expensive every year it gets from year after year after year. Um, Some of the tuition programs at colleges now allow you to lock in four years of tuition if you will pay in year one. Well, that you're avoiding the inflation in year two, year three and year four, which if I had done it correctly, would have been actually a good decision for me. Uh, but I think the number is annualized at nine percent, and so uh, you think about how expensive that is. Well, that is there. That inflation exists because essentially, incoming students have free money available to them, and they will pay whatever it takes. And the colleges know that, and uh, so it's a it's sort of a uh, uh, it's a very interesting ecosystem that we have created. Um, and that's also the same reason why healthcare costs escalate. Whenever you put the cost off on a third party, guess what? Prices are going to go up because people don't have a, a stake in the decision-making as to how to consume those services. One of the ways to fix that, I think, would have a, a copay on every single transaction. If you go in for you know an emergency room visit that might be expensive and you have no copay, I think if you had a $20 copay, your number of visits to the emergency room would be substantially less. Uh, People would then have a stake in the game. And it's the exact same thing with uh, the tax situation, up to $10,000 worth of income, essentially, there is no tax levy. Well, those people don't have a stake in the game. And so I think that even if it was just a dollar, it would have some way of making people part of the tax system, and it would change their thinking about the way they apply economics in their own life.
0: Well said. Well, Gil, you've already given us a bunch, but the people are ready for that difference-making tip. What do you have for them?
1: Um, I think the key difference in doing well in life has to do with resilience, otherwise known as grit. And many people who don't prosper uh, financially wonder what it is that makes people with money different and it is primarily that they don't give up uh, so resilience and grit is the key to prosperity and i hope people can uh, get something from that
0: well i think that that is great stuff that definitely gets it. come on resilience and grit is the key to prosperity i love it Gil, thank you so much for coming back on. Where can people learn more about you? How can they engage with you?
1: Um, My firm is called Segment Wealth Management, S E G M E N T. SegmentWM.com is our website. Um, I also uh, wrote the book that you were talking about, Foolish How Investors Get Worked Up and Worked Over by the System, which is kind of an exploration of how the brokerage industry operates and then the uphill battle that people fight with themselves in dealing with fear and greed issues that cause bad decision-making. So they can get that on Amazon. It's also on audible. Um, So that's where they can, they can find me. I also write a blog segmentwmcom forward slash blog. People can sign up for it. We don't send out any trash mail. We don't sell the mail list. We don't call you. We just write about current topics. And if they want to read our current writings, it'll come in as an email to them. If they sign up,
0: love it. If yep. you enjoyed this, if you enjoyed this much as I did, show Gil your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. Go to segment WM as in segment management.com and check out the great resources. Check out the blog and pick up a copy of Foolish wherever you buy your books. Thanks again, Gil.
1: Thank you. Appreciate it.
0: And until next time, keep fighting the good fight. We are all in this together.